justify prove to be right or reasonable justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification justify a podcast on law and politics in india from the vidhi center for legal policy hosted by orgo sen gupta welcome to justify today's episode is titled article 370 and schrodinger's cat is article 370 still there or is it gone it's a fundamental and existential question that we'll be discussing with kevin james and akshat agarwal research fellows at the vidhi center for legal policy in our tete tete but before that our round up of cases from last week question arose before the supreme court a constitution bench as to whether a state legislation could provide a direct appeal to the supreme court several state legislations do so this adds to the docket of the court because appeals to the supreme court are statutory and they have to be taken up as a matter of law in rajendra diwan versus pradeep kumar ranibala a constitution bench of the supreme court held section 132 of the chatisgarh rent control act which provided a direct appeal from the decision of the rent control tribunal to the supreme court unconstitutional it said that a state legislature has no legislative competence to deal with a question that related to the jurisdiction of the court the jurisdiction and powers of the supreme court are a matter that is in the union list secondly the matter in the state list on the basis of which this rent control legislation was passed is entry 18 of the state list which enabled the state legislature to legislate with respect to land legislating on land is not all encompassing to include within its ambit providing a direct appeal to the supreme court hence state legislatures from now on cannot provide in their laws a direct appeal to the supreme court hopefully this will reduce the court's docket significantly In Ram Murthy Yadav versus the state of Uttar Pradesh the question before the court was whether a compulsory retirement of a judicial officer in this case an additional district and sessions judge was valid this is an extremely relevant question particularly given the fact that the central government has been compulsorily retiring several officers particularly those from the Indian revenue service and in this case the question before the court was to what extent would the court interfere in a order of compulsory retirement when it came up in judicial review the court held that the order is valid this is because the scope of judicial review of an order of compulsory retirement has to be based on the subjective satisfaction of the employer thus the scope of the court's jurisdiction is extremely narrow and restricted so given the fact that judicial service is unique and a judge holds the office of public trust the standard they said of judging the conduct of an officer has to be strict 
and ordinarily the discretion of the person who has made the order of compulsory retirement would not be interfered with. So the court is going to be deferential in these matters. So compulsory retirement may be a common antidote to non-performing officers. Another interesting question arose in DMK versus the Governor's Secretariat. A three-judge bench of the Supreme Court had to go into the issue of delimitation and whether certain set of elections conducted in Tamil Nadu post a delimitation process were valid or not. This has tremendous consequences, especially given the fact that delimitation of parliamentary constituencies is expected in less than a decade. In this case, the question was whether elections can be held in the reconstituted districts, that is after delimitation, without having completed all the formalities of the delimitation process. The court in this case upheld the requirement of procedural propriety and said that the delimitation process would have to be completed before any elections could be carried out. Thus, they said that the elections for the reconstituted districts should be held within a period of four months after delimitation is complete. Elections, however, could proceed as normal in other districts. The court is here to uphold not only substantive legality, but procedural legality as well. Our High Court case for this week is Subair TP versus the Union of India, a decision of a division bench of the Kerala High Court. Now, we all know in India that witnesses turn hostile. We have seen this in several cases, very high profile ones, and particularly those which involve VIP accused. Now, in this case, it was an appeal that was filed by the National Investigating Agency challenging the special court directions to share copies of witness statements, which the agency contended would expose protected witnesses to threats from the accused. Now, we know that in terror cases, not only in India, but elsewhere in the world, whether it be under the Patriot Act in the United States or under the special advocate system in the United Kingdom, there are restrictions on the principles of natural justice. All materials are not provided to the accused, especially in very significant terror cases. The court had to go into the right to a fair trial and what information was necessary to be given to the accused so that he could defend himself, while at the same time ensuring witness protection. The court first held that in cases of this nature, the NIA can withhold certain materials from the accused for a limited period of time. The police could also do the same. But the court would have the discretion to reveal such statements if they felt that the right to fair trial hinged on it. So if there are compelling reasons and in the interest of avoiding serious prejudice, it may also reveal the identity of the accused. The court also noted that witness protection programs in the country were not developed and urged that this ought to be developed expeditiously. 
Finally, it said that the witness statements should be shared with the accused, but after blacking out the identity of the protected witnesses. This is really a call for a witness protection program to be instituted expeditiously. If we want witnesses to come forward, they must be protected. Today's deep dive is titled Article 370 and Schrodinger's Cat. Is Article 370 still alive? Or is it dead? Or is it perhaps both alive and dead? On the 5th of August 2019, Article 370 was nullified. It wasn't repealed. It wasn't abrogated. But it was modified in a way that now the Constitution of India applies to the state of Jammu and Kashmir as it does to every other part of India. The question arises that is Article 370 gone or does it still exist in some form? This will have to be determined by the Supreme Court and for the Supreme Court to determine this, it will have to determine what Article 370 the erstwhile Article 370 was. From an analysis of the scheme of Article 370, three things become clear. First, that Jammu and Kashmir was unlike any other state in India. It was in a sui generis category. No other state had a similar provision which was a condition for its accession to India. Second, this special nature of Jammu and Kashmir was owing to the political and legal recognition by the government of India that the accession of Jammu and Kashmir to India would finally be determined by the people of Jammu and Kashmir itself. There's plenty of documentation to show this. Third, Article 370 was a temporary arrangement till the people of Jammu and Kashmir finally determined their own view on the question. Once a determination was made, it would be put into effect by a presidential order under Article 370, subclause 3, to seize the operation of 370 itself or to modify it. The basic feature of 370 was thus to entrench an arrangement in the constitution which could not be changed by the regular process of amendment. Instead, it outlined a special procedure that captured both the residual sovereignty of JNK. JNK, after all, had some vestiges of sovereignty to determine their accession as well as their constitutional relationship with India. And it also recognized the unquestioned sovereignty of the President of India acting on behalf of the Union of India in this matter. Thus, if Article 370 had to go, it would require both the people of Jammu and Kashmir and the people of India to agree. Cut to about 40 years back. It's 1980 and the Supreme Court is hearing the Minerva Mills dispute. To those who are familiar with the law, the Minerva Mills case was one of the first cases which really applied the doctrine of the basic structure of the constitution. Two provisions were critically challenged in this case. There were some others, but that's not relevant to us. 
and they were provisions brought in by the 42nd amendment 1976 which was the notorious amendment brought in during emergency rule in article 368 which provides how the constitution is to be amended subsections 4 and 5 were introduced by the 42nd amendment subsection 4 insulated any amendment to the constitution from judicial review it simply said that there would be no judicial review in so far as amendments to the constitution are concerned subsection 5 expressly declared that there shall be no limitations of the power of parliament to amend the constitution this was a declaration that parliament is supreme and the supreme court should not get in the way both these subsections were struck down by the supreme court in minerva wills with justice bhagwati saying in his concurring opinion that the amendments sought to convert a controlled constitution into an uncontrolled one limited amendability is a basic feature of the constitution and thus the constitution cannot now look like a completely different document and still be called the constitution it can only be amended in limited form the question that arises is limited by what what are these limitations on the power of parliament to amend the constitution the limitation on the amending power is that it cannot abrogate the basic structure of the constitution now what are these features of the basic structure of the constitution is a very large question which we will not get into now but this is where minerva mills is interesting because in logic that perhaps intuitively seems circular it says that limited amendability itself is a part of the basic structure that is you cannot amend the constitution beyond a certain point because that would itself violate the basic structure so what does this mean for article 370 as i said earlier article 370 has a singular basic feature that's embedded both in its text as well as its historical underpinnings and that is that it takes two hands to clap the applicability of the constitution of india to jnk or its modification will require both the substantive agreement of the union of india and the state this has two components one is procedural how can you change article 370 now whether such procedure has been followed or not in the case that is before us that is the actions of parliament on the 5th of august 2019 depends on whether these actions can be taken when president's rule is imposed in a state that is by parliament acting on behalf as if it were exercising the powers of the state legislature this is one of the issues that we'll discuss but there is also a substantive feature of 370 that is till such time as the will of the people of jammu and kashmir determines the final terms of its relationship with india no amendment to article 370 that vests power in any one authority is contemplated it says that in every action in relation to 370 it will take two hands to clap and the indian government has said time and again that the ultimate status of jammu and kashmir will be determined in accordance with the will of the people so what did the will of the people say the people of jammu and kashmir 
through a series of presidential orders with which their representatives acquiesced, said that the Constitution of India would apply in specific modified forms to JNK. So there were certain provisions of the Constitution which didn't apply. Article 368 was one of them and several others didn't apply to JNK. There were special provisions like Article 35A, which you, many of you may have heard of, which allowed for land in Jammu and Kashmir to only be owned by permanent residents of the state and not others. The people of Jammu and Kashmir also promulgated their own constitution, which came into force on 26 January 1957. Through Section 3, the state constitution confirmed that JNK is and shall be an integral part of the Union of India. Further, Section 3 was made unamendable. Now, there were several political circumstances as a result of which JNK made this decision. But in terms of law, JNK confirmed its accession to the Union of India while, and this is critical, reserving for itself the continuing power to determine the terms of its relationship with the Union. Consequently, when orders were issued on the 5th of August 2019, Till then, there were more than 40 amendments to presidential orders under Article 370 setting out the terms of this relationship. Any amendment of this arrangement after the Constituent Assembly of JNK ceased to exist, putting in place the possibility of unilateral action determining the future of the constitutional relationship would convert this controlled power that it requires two hands to clap into an uncontrolled power where only one side can do the talking. If Minerva Mills is to continue as good precedent, then any change to Article 370, which does not reinforce its basic feature that it takes two hands to clap, may be susceptible that it falls foul of the basic feature of the Constitution that's limited amendability. For my tete tete today, I have Kevin James and Akshat Agarwal, research fellows at the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy, who've been studying the issue of Article 370 and the actions on 5th August 2019 for the last few months. So I'm delighted to have them with me today. Welcome, Kevin and Akshat. Good to have you. So Akshat, let me start with you. Our podcast today is titled Article 370 and Schrodinger's Cat. It seems that Article 370 is both dead and alive at the same time. Is that true? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And to answer that, we have we will have to look at the events of August 5th more closely. So if you look at 373, it confers two powers, right? One power is to cease for the article to cease to operate. And the other power is to make it operative with exceptions and modifications. Now, what did the parliament do that day, right? It seems to have used a combination of the two powers. Because while it said that the article ceases to operate, it also saved 371 in a different form. It modified 371. So let's slow it down for people who might have forgotten because 5th August was a while back. Yeah. So one thing that it says is that it gives the power to seize the operation of exactly. 370. Yeah. That is 370 does not operate any longer. Any longer. Yeah. And the second power is to modify the way in which 370 operates. operates yes. 
So what happened was that while it said that 370 will cease to operate, it saved one part of 370 and said that the entire constitution will now be applicable to the state of Jammu and Kashmir. Now, this is also interesting now because Jammu and Kashmir doesn't exist anymore after 31st October. Mm. So effectively, that article is dead letter now. Mm. But if you look at these two powers, if they'd used the first power to make it cease to operate, then you could have still argued that it's dead now. Because effectively, they've used the power to make it inoperative and therefore it doesn't exist anymore. But if you use the power to modify and or make it operative with exceptions, then one can argue that it still has some vestiges of it left. Because if you modify something, then by logic, it would follow that you can modify it again or make further exceptions to it. So, so it, you're saying that... Consider this thought experiment that today a government has come and modified it to say that the whole of the constitution of India will operate. Yeah. So tomorrow, potentially in theory, another government could come and say that the original 370 is restored. Yeah, could exactly. Exactly. Because if you have the power to modify with exceptions, you can also go back to the original position, right? Because you're modifying it. You're modifying the operation of the article. And you're applying it with exceptions and modifications. But there seems to be a problem with that. And Kevin, I'll bring you in here. And the problem seems to be that this provision of 370 subclause 3, which he referred to, doesn't exist anymore. That was the provision which gave the power in the first place. So if, say, a future government were to come and want to change this state of affairs, would that be a constitutional amendment under 368 or can we use the powers of 370 in this suspended form in some way? Whether Article 368 applies to Article 370 in the manner that it applies to every other constitutional provision is an independent question which is quite interesting. Um, one might look into the intention of the framers to suggest that because Article 370 in Clause 3 has its own even though the word amendment is not used, has its own modification procedure. One might argue that this being a special procedure actually trumps Article 368. And if Article 370 were also amenable to the regular procedure under Article 368, there would be no point to Article 370 Clause 3. If one were to look at it that way, then one would argue that whereas for another constitutional provision, the power under Article 368 can be used to repeal it, if Article 368 is not applicable for Article 370, then the procedure that Article 370 itself provides can be considered tantamount to repeal. The implications of that would be that it would not come back in the manner that Akshat suggested. But it's interesting because as far as the other view is concerned regarding whether a subsequent government can bring it back, one can look at, for example, say Section 21 of the General Clauses Act, which suggests that whenever there is any power to amend vary or whenever there is any power to issue an order, that power within itself includes the power to later modify it. And if we see it in that way, and it also this section also clarifies that the second instance when this power is used, it will also be subject to the same conditions as the first instance, then one might suggest that using the same procedure, it might be brought again. Just one more point regarding this, however, is that since you mentioned uh, the case of Minerva Mills initially, this condition, this, this situation can also be seen as analogous to it in a sense, because whereas in Minerva, the court said that the donee of a limited power cannot by exercise of that very power convert it into an unlimited one. It appears what has happened in this case is that 
the Tony of a limited power has used that power to completely remove that power. And one might argue on the other end that limited amendability also means that one should not be able to remove the amendability power itself. Yeah. So that is another implication that is possible. Yeah, it's intuitive and logical, right? If you have a power to change something or modify it, you don't have the power to take that power away. So what has happened on 5th of August is really interesting and curious because what they've done is, as you said, they've done away with 373 altogether, which is using 373 to do it, to do away with the provision itself. So now what we have is a curious situation where either, as you said, we apply 368 to amend it, or we rely on this power, which in the text of the constitution doesn't exist anymore. The text doesn't exist anymore, but it is not logical for them to take away this entire power using that power. Itself. Yeah, that's a pretty fantastic constitutional mm-hmm. position to be in that either we can amend it through 368, which of course should be open, number one, or we take recourse to a constitutional provision that is in some state of suspension because we are not sure whether it exists or not. So I think these will be tough questions for the Supreme Court to have to grapple with, uh, especially given the fact that this is not only about the legality of one action, but also about its potential irreversibility, because that is how it has been portrayed. And I can see great political reasons for saying that it is irreversible but i think the irreversibility will also have to be seen as a matter of law yeah completely and it's such a complex legal question because as you said 370 is sui generis right it doesn't exist in the constitution so really interesting what what supreme court relies upon to even reach these answers yeah a lot of these yeah a lot of these applications have to be by analogy yeah because even Minerva never had Article 370 in mind. And we are looking yeah. at Article 370 as a self-contained code with its own Article exactly. 368. And, and so I think on. we can be fairly certain that this is going to be one of the seminal constitutional cases of all time. It certainly seems to be on paper one of the most complex that I have encountered. And uh, so so that means certainly in the last decade and a half, this is one of the most Mm, complex cases that we've seen because it's basic structure plus Article 370 plus federalism. So let's come to that issue on Article 356. What has really stirred the pot and I think has created uh, both concern as well as potential is whether this power could be exercised when president's rule is operational in the state of Jammu and Kashmir. Now, Article 356 does allow for first governor's rule and then president's rule in the state of Jammu and Kashmir. But Article 370 says that if you were to, as you said, either cease to make it operative or modify it, you need the constituent assembly of the state. So, Kevin, if you could explain to our listeners that how did we reach this situation from the constituent assembly of the state to parliament exercising these powers as it did on the 5th of August? So, the first action that happened on the 5th of August was that in exercise of its power under Article 370, Clause 1D, A constitutional order, a presidential order was passed, which made a modification to Article 367 in its application to the state of Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, This procedure, um, although it happened in the course of an emergency, 
there have been several constitutional orders of this nature under Article 371D that have been passed over the decades. But what this one did was that it made a series of changes to Article 367, which the heading of Article 367 is interpretation. And one of the changes that it made was that it stated that the reference to constituent assembly of the state of Jammu and Kashmir in Article 370 Clause 3 shall be construed as legislative assembly of the state. There are two elements to this. The first is the manner in which this was brought about, which was again during a period of president's rule. Article 371D requires for such an order to be made, it requires either the consultation or the concurrence of the state government in particular cases. So let's slow it down for one minute. Yeah. So when it said that we are replacing the constituent assembly with the legislative assembly of the state, is that in your view an interpretation or is that in your view a modification that goes beyond an interpretation? Both views I think are possible. I think the view which suggests that it can be read as an interpretation would see the legislative assembly of the state as the logical successor of the constituent assembly of the state. After all, if you take the example generally for India, it is the constituent assembly of India which drafted the constitution. But when it comes to constitutional amendments, it is now the parliament who does it. That's one way to look at it. Of course, the other way to look at it is that what is the fundamental nature of the constituent assembly as a body? What are its functions? And vis-a-vis -vis that, what are the functions of the legislative assembly of a state? One can argue that when it comes to the constituent assembly, the idea is that it exercises constituent power, which is a plenary power which rests in itself, a power which is an exercise of sovereignty. And if we were to see Article 370 as constitutive of the relationship between the Union of India and the state of Jammu and Kashmir, which, as you suggested earlier, did have some vestiges of sovereignty, then one could argue that the reason why specifically the term constituent assembly of the state was mentioned in Article 370 Clause 3 and their recommendation was made necessary for making any change to Article 370 was that if there is going to be a change in the relationship, then it should be a body which exercises constituent power as opposed to but isn't the logical corollary to that that once the constituent assembly of jammu and kashmir ceases to exist that provision becomes a dead letter because there is going to be unless there is a future constituent assembly which is a not really relevant for our purpose but doesn't that follow from what you've just said that this provision can't be used that has been a view which has been mentioned by a few people. This actually goes into, we'll have to see what did the framers have in mind when, when they actually inserted this, this term in that provision to begin with. Interestingly, when Art Article 370 was part of the constitution as originally adopted in 1950, this was at a time when there was no constituent assembly of Jammu and Kashmir, which was uh, in place. This was, uh, they began their work in the 1950s after the Indian constitution, after Article 370 in its current, in, in its form as it was before August 5th referred to them. Interestingly, one can say that once the constituent assembly of the state drafted their own constitution, it was perhaps open to them to make a recommendation in the manner that Article 370 Clause 3 envisaged. In fact, uh, the president of India at the time, Rajendra Prasad, in one of his communications also indicates that he felt that this power was meant to be exercised once. And the idea was that there will be a constituent assembly of the state. They will deliberate regarding 
the nature of this relationship for which Article 370 was a stand-in. And then they will make a recommendation as per 370 clause 3 and then 370 will be replaced by what is a sort of permanent compact. But the fact is they didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's very important, in fact, because how do you interpret the constitution, right? Do you interpret it in a manner where the provision becomes dead letter or do you interpret it in a manner that it remains dynamic? Because clearly, while the intention may have been to use it just once, it didn't happen. So now the question is, and obviously the framers knew that the constitution assembly won't last forever. It was supposed to perform a specific function and then, you know, get dissolved. So how do we read it now? The fact that it did not recommend anything. So if it happened once, whether it be 1954 or in subsequently, it can happen again in 2019. I think the question that arises is the way in which it has happened. So yeah. in terms of the replacing constituent assembly with legislative assembly, let us say for a moment that that is for the sake of argument that that is an interpretation which is permissible. But we didn't stop there. It now became the parliament exercising these powers under Article 356. Now, Kevin, you've done a lot of research on Article 356. What is your view? Is that a permissible exercise of power under 356? Under Article 356, a lot of extraordinary powers are vested upon the central government vis-a-vis -vis the state government. In, uh, in many studies, it is suggested and it is characterized as a provision which by its very nature is anti-federal to an extent. Because when we say that state governments have their own basis in the constitution and they aren't dependent on the center in any way, and then you have a provision which allows the center in certain cases to sort of override the state government and come in. Now, the manner in which courts have interpreted the scope of what is permissible and what isn't in, under Article 356 is very interesting and it will have to be the, those cases which will have to be applied creatively in this particular context because as we've been mentioning since the outset um, article 370 is sui generis so there has certainly been no case which interprets 356 vis-a-vis -vis 370 but there have been cases which do interpret 356 in a manner consistent with the broader ideas of federalism and this is very interesting again because if you see the case in 1994 of uh, SR Bomai and also taking a very much more recent example, the last year in July, uh, the case of government of NCT of Delhi versus Union of India, we see that there have been courts who have held that if multiple interpretations of Article 356 are possible, then that interpretation which advances federalism, which is part of the basic structure, should be preferred and should be given effect to rather than and rather than a contrary interpretation. Now. That is one way to look at it, of course. And if one were to go about it that way, then one will have to say, all right, so it has to be read in, read in a limited manner. Then perhaps one has to read it purposively. So what is the purpose behind granting this extraordinary power to the central government to begin with, so that then we can begin to understand whether this particular exercise of it was consistent with this purpose? And it seems that in Article 355, it suggests that the union has the responsibility, amongst other things, to ensure that the government of the state is carried on in accordance with the provisions of the constitution. I think this is a very interesting article and I'm glad you've pointed to it because I frankly, till the last couple of years, didn't know of the existence of this article. Uh, and so what's the argument you're making from 355? So the idea is that how does one judge the validity 
or legitimacy of actions taken under a proclamation issued under 356. So if the idea is that the, and there are judgments like in Burma, for example, it mentions that 355 represents the justification behind vesting the powers that are granted in 356. Therefore, in order to test the validity of actions under this proclamation issued under 356, one would have to see whether it really does advance this purpose under 355. And the purpose under 355 is that it is the duty of the union to protect the state against external aggression and internal disturbance so that the state is carried on in accordance with the provisions of the constitution. Yeah, but also the fact is it has also been read very broadly over time, right? We know the fact that when governments are, when state governments are unable to form after elections, the union always imposes emergency in different states. In fact, it happened most recently in Maharashtra, where, it, where the government could not be formed and they imposed an emergency under 356. So the fact is that over time, 355 has also been read very broadly. So if you want to read it broadly, I think you may even read it narrowly in this case, as in there could be a very cogent argument that this is the state of Jammu and Kashmir we are talking about. This is a state that faces extra problems of external aggression from the time it has existed. And we feel that the constitution cannot be carried on, the, sorry, the operation of the state cannot be carried on in accordance with the constitution. And so we now need to take steps in furtherance of our obligation under 355, using our powers under 356 to change 370. No, but that's really interesting because for the first time till now, the courts have largely been concerned with the question of whether a proclamation of emergency is constitutional or not, whether the governor's satisfaction was right, etc. This is the first time where you're going into the thicket of whether an action taken after an emergency was right or not. So if we logically pursue your argument, should they have waited the entire time mentioned under 356 to do this? Why was the need to do it right now instead of later, right? And can the courts really judge? And can the courts really judge, yeah. As and to whether the constitution could have been carried on in a different way, could it have been done without but necessarily bifurcating the state? As if this seemingly is a question that's trade in the political thicket. Fair enough. And, and it's very interesting, in fact, the 356 was never intended to be used this way. So Rahul Sagar has done some research on the Constituent Assembly debates on 356, which talk about how it was meant to be used in really emergent situations where they thought that democratic governments would not function in accordance with the constitution and they had very specific threats in mind at that point in time, which they called militant democracies. That's what the drafting committee notes say. But over time, the provision has completely changed because it doesn't really conform to the meaning of emergency anymore, because now it's used in a lot of situations where governments are not formed, etc. With respect to the scope of judicial review regarding this, it appears that two views are possible. If you see one of the observations made by Justice P.V. Savant in uh, the case of S.R. Gomai, he suggests that, and this is just an observation, but he suggests that once it is determined that the issue of a proclamation was valid, then the subsequent determination as to whether actions taken under that proclamation, are they also valid or not, falls within a narrower compass, is how he viewed it. So this is one way of going about it, that you know you, you have a high threshold for suggesting whether it is valid or not, whether the proclamation itself is valid. But after that, the courts take a hands-off approach to suggest that whatever you do after that, provided that the issue itself is fine, is all right. But the other way to look at it, perhaps, and it, it, it is interesting, we'll have to see how the courts interpret it in this case, would be that the reason why a threshold is made applicable to the issue of proclamation is precisely because the 
nature of the powers conferred by 356 as such that they can be misused. And this is something which has been observed by various commissions. As on date, there have been yeah. more than 100 instances of uh, of emergency being imposed in this manner. And it's only after the case of SR Goma and also after coalition politics started after the 90s that, that this has been sort of curtailed to an extent. Now, it is also a bit strange to suggest that we will be very particular about whether you can issue a proclamation and after that you can do anything. Yeah. So that could be the other view that perhaps... And especially in this case, right? Because, you know, regular actions, they fundamentally change the constitutional relationship which is entrenched in the constitution. So how do you judge these actions in the in light of an emergency? So while Bomai may have said that, but I'm sure the, the judges did not think of a Kashmir-like situation then. I mean, you're changing the rules of the game completely. Well, I think that... <laughs> Irrespective of whether Kashmir was in an emergent situation or not, I think jurisprudence certainly is in an emergent situation with this case. So let's move on to my final question to the both of you. In short, for our listeners, do you think that the action taken on the 5th of August 2019 does something to the basic feature of 370 that might render it unconstitutional or do you think that it's one of these cases which is so much in the balance that perhaps the courts ought to differ to the government quick final word from both of you as a thought experiment it's interesting to consider imagine if a constituent assembly of jammu and kashmir were in fact around as of august 5th 2019 imagine if they did in fact sign it there was no president's rule they signed on to all of the actions of august 5th and they replaced article 370 with precisely what it reads currently which is that all of the constitution applies to the state of jnk uh, would that also have been suspect in the manner that we think that the actions of august 5th in fact were um, if we are saying that, so that would be a case where the procedure was followed very meaningfully and they changed it to a particular thing substantively, would that be fine or not? Now, I would argue that this would be the actual test to see whether basic structure, the way in which we've understood it in the context of Article 368, whether that can apply to Article 370. Because just to reiterate, when it comes to Article 368, even if the procedure is followed to a T, even if the ratification of all states are taken and all of that, there are still some substantive changes which can't be brought about. For example, Article 21 can't be repealed, even if the procedure is followed. Now, are we saying that Article 370 could not have been changed in this manner, even if the procedure was followed? I would personally think that that is not the case. I think that the reason why the actions of August 5th are suspect is because this procedure was not followed because of the egregious nature of the application of Article 356, that if the procedure was in fact followed, that if the two hands did clap, then they could have clapped in agreement to any scheme. Mm. And there's no limitation to the kind of scheme that they adopted. Yeah, and from today's date and time, if it was the Legislative Assembly for that matter, right? Because if that's the successor body, and for the sake of argument, we agree that it is, then if that recommended that the entire constitution apply to JNK, would that be valid today? So that could be another way of understanding in today's time because the constitution assembly doesn't exist. So, and I think for basic structure, we need to ask, what is the philosophical basis of applying basic structure to 370, right? Because it's not the same 
League is your Article 21 and other features of the Constitution. It's a textual provision, a specific provision which represents asymmetric federalism. To what extent can we apply basic structure to it? And as Kevin said, I think the procedure is the key to this right now. Whether these actions are valid in light of an emergency is what we need to question. So, I mean, you can possibly apply basic structure, but my view would be that in spite of that, even if it doesn't apply, you could still assail the actions of the 5th of August, just on grounds of procedure. So it seems like substantively maybe the change might have been okay but procedurally i think the supreme court does have some really tough questions on its hands i hope we do get a judgment irrespective of which side it comes down on that really breaks new ground and can be a real constitutional landmark in Absolutely. a case yeah, dealing with sure. both basic structure and federalism so maybe we'll have our new keshvananda and hope uh, it's not too long. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's a good note to stop our otherwise short podcast. So thanks very much, Akshat and Kevin, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Time for Clatter, our legal quiz that's a bit tougher than clat. Clearly, last week's quiz was tough for many of you who answered Jammu and Kashmir. The correct answer, however, is Hyderabad, where Justice Mahajan went and sat along with a bench of two judges from the local high court to dispose of appeals. So no prizes for last time. Hopefully, you'll do better this time. Time for this week's question, where we travel to America. What connects George W. Bush, Al Gore, Scalding coffee at McDonald's and an exploding gas tank. Might sound a little cryptic, so this is one that I hope will exercise some of those gray cells. Send in your answers to justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in. All right answers go into a pool where you stand to win an Amazon gift voucher. Thanks very much for joining us this week. Till next time. Adjourned. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Vidhi underscore India for regular updates. Follow us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or any other podcast channel that you know to tune in to our next episode. Email us at justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode. We look forward to hearing from you.